All right, we're in chapter two. It's been a little while, and I did chapter one of Holy Scripture, then I digressed, and we looked at the issues of canon, we looked at the textual issues, and then we've had a bunch of missionaries here, and we had the Reformation Party, and we're now back to the Westminster Standards in chapter two of God and the Holy Trinity. Oh, I messed that up. Uh, There's three paragraphs in this second chapter. And the first makes the point that there is one God only. I'm going to read this. Uh, There is but one only living and true God who is infinite in being and perfection, a most pure spirit, invisible, without body, parts, or passions, immutable, immense, eternal, incomprehensible, almighty, most wise, most holy, most free, most absolute, working all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory, most loving, gracious, merciful, long-suffering, abundance in goodness and truth, forgiving iniquity, transgression and sin, the rewarder of them that diligently seek him and withal most just and terrible in his judgments, hating all sins, and who will by no means clear the guilty. Now, there's a, there's a legend about this paragraph. and It's actually a history but as is true of all history, there are those who've, who've written counter-histories. And this is when the Westminster Divines began saying, okay, we're now going to write a paragraph on the being of God. They all kind of look at me, why do you do that? They look at each other like, uh, like what do we say? Uh, and they decided, one of the members said, we should pray before we do this. We're, we're going to be standing on holy ground. And we're going to be, we need to pray. And, and somebody suggested we should have the youngest member of the assembly pray. Now that was George Gillespie, who was one of the Scottish divines who had recently come down. And the story is that he began praying and he prayed this. And while the prayer was going on, someone started writing it down. And uh, there's an insight at least, namely that the knowledge of God requires prayer. And to think about the being of God requires a, an attitude that only he can give. That's the story. of. I, I, now there are people who claim that, it's, that Gillespie was not present at the time. Maybe it was somebody else, but that's the story, uh, and it's in the history books. Uh, now, what are the issues in that first paragraph? Well, first, it's monotheism. There is only one God. There's, there's one divine being. There is one, not, not one divine person, but one divine being. There is only one first cause of all things. There is only one supreme being. And there's lots of Bible verses to show at the heart of our faith is monotheism. There is but one God. I am, even I am He. There is no God beside me. Uh, Deuteronomy 4, uh, 6 4 is the great, uh, the, the saying called the Shema. If you go to a Jewish synagogue, almost certainly Deuteronomy 6.4 will be written somewhere prominently. Shema O Yisrael, Yahweh Eloheinu, Yahweh Ahad. The Lord, hero Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the great claim against all the polytheism of the world and all the philosophical insanity that breeds. No, there is one God. Uh, Paul says, we know that an idol has no real existence. There is no God but one. And so the insistence that there is one God. Now we're later going to come and say there's three persons. We are, but they're those that we're talking in different ways. The, the being, the essence, the nature of God, 
There is but one. One thing it means is there's only one divine will. That's an important thing. There's not competing wills. You know, one of the big philosophical or even you know, uh, religious views is dualism. And you'll often get this in the pagan pantheons, pantheons where you have basically a, a good God. Uh, you get this in Marvel comics, too. There's an ultimate good and an ultimate evil. And history is the work. It's the back and forth between the ultimate good and the ultimate evil. It's a never-ending contest. Well, thank God we don't live in a world like that. There is one God, and he is our God. And he is the only living and true God. Now, why do we say living? Well, that is to distinguish him from the dead idols. He's not, he actually interacts with us. He, he's a, he's a, an active living God. He is the true God uh, apart from all fictitious notions of deity. Uh, God is a most pure spirit. God is incorporeal. God is immaterial. He is an invisible being. And, and the sta- this, the, that statement I read says, without parts, body, parts, or passions. Uh, one of the doctrines of God, this is a kind of, there are some doctrines in our theology that we have to maintain, even if we don't know how it works out. One of them is called the simplicity of God. There are no parts. He's not a composite being. Now, you go, now, what does it mean to be a being without parts? Well, we really can't say it positively. We only say it non-negatively. You can't say, you can't point to a part of God in his being versus another part. Um, you go, well, what about all the Bible language? The hand of God, the eyes of the mouth of the Lord. Well, these are what we call anthropomorphisms. It's a way of speaking about God in human terms. And, and, and when, we, when, when we talk about the hand of God, we're not meaning a physical, you know, member. We're talking about an activity that he engages in or a property of his character. The eyes of the Lord, well, that reflects that he's all-knowing. But when you read that in the Bible, on the one hand, we want to say, we know that that is not an, an accurate description in that sense. God does not have a, the long arm of the Lord. He does not actually have a long, an arm. But what it is saying in those terms, you follow me, is true. And so we are human beings, and so God communicates to us about himself in a way that makes sense to human beings. John Calvin said, uh, all of theology, all of the Bible is baby talk. You know how you get down with a little, we had a four-year-old at our dinner table tonight, and you get on his level and you talk his language. And God gets on our level and he talks our language. If he did not, we could not communicate with him. We could not know anything from him. And so he has anthropomorphisms and anthropopathisms. Describes himself in human ways and in human feelings. But he himself was without body, parts, or passions. Now, the impassibility of God is another one of these doctrines. The implications of not, and that means that nothing, nothing affects him. Nothing affects God. Well, that must be the case, because if he could be affected, then whatever affected him would be God. At the same time, we have to take at face value what the Bible says about him. I've learned as a preacher that uh, when God says, when, when he ascribes feelings to himself, we are to take them at face value. And so we're operating at the level of his revelation to us. He's operating at the level of his eternal being. We can't operate at that level. We operate at this level. 
We know that God, nothing moves God, nothing changes God. What a thought it would be for God to be changed. It's really unthinkable if you think about it. At the same time, when we read that he loves us, we take that at face value. That's really true of him. Um, he is possessed of all possible perfections. And so there's this long laundry list of, of attributes. You know, once you start doing any of them, you got to do all of them. And so they're just mining the scriptures. They don't want to leave anything. You can't leave anything out when you're writing a chapter on the nature of God, on the being of God. We can categorize them, though, uh, that God into various attributes respecting his infinity. He's, he's infinite. He's eternal with respect to time. He is immense. There is no place where God is not. Paul says, in him we live and move and have our being. Our universe, as it were, is in God. Now, you say, well, God, God is not in the universe. That is true. But the universe is in him. There's a creature-creator divide between God and his creation, but everything is in him. Um, God's transcendence, his holiness, his sovereignty, he is holy above all others, his power, his goodness, his mercy, and his righteousness. This is the one God. Now, the second paragraph deals with what is called the aseity of God. Now, the Latin, ah, is from, se is self, God is from himself. It's actually a very important truth. God has all life, glory, goodness, blessedness in and of himself and is alone in and unto himself all sufficient, not standing in need of any creatures which he has made, nor deriving any glory from them, but only manifesting his own glory in, by, unto, and upon them. He is alone, the, the alone fountain of all being. There's a great line. He is the alone fountain of all being of whom, through whom, and to whom are all things, and has the most sovereign dominion over them, to do by them, for them, or upon them, whatsoever himself pleaseth. In his sight all things are open and manifest. His knowledge is infinite, infallible, and independent upon the creature, so as nothing is to him contingent or uncertain. He is most holy in all his counsel, in all his works, and in all his commands. To him is due from angels and men and every other creature. Whatsoever worship, service, or obedience, he is pleased to require of him. A couple of issues here. Uh, God does not derive his being from another. I once heard R.C. say, you know, what's the difference between you and the supreme being? The answer is being. He possesses being. You do not intrinsically possess being. There was a time when you were not. But there was never a time when God was not. God possesses in himself. He is himself the fountain of all being. My being is derivative. Uh, there was a, you know, you have those, those, you see them in the stores. Uh, what happened the year that you were born? Mine was 1960. You can do the math of all the things. But my, I was talking to uh, some years ago when Jonathan was younger. I said to him, son, who do you think was president of the United States when I was born? And he thought and he looked at me and he said, Abraham Lincoln? <laughs> it's not that bad, but it's actually Dwight Eisenhower. That's pretty bad itself. Uh, and so there's a, you can find the card in the store that tells you what happened the year that I was born. Prior to that, I did not have being. My parents conceived me, but God gave me being. Well, there was never, a, there was no card in the store for God. He 
he is. That's, isn't that what he says? I am that I am. And that's why the emblem he gave himself was the burning bush. The fire that, did, and the thing about the burning bush was it was independent upon the bush itself. The bush was, it was not deriving its life. It was in the bush, but the bush itself was not being consumed. He is his own fire. He is not deriving it from anything else. In fact, one of the great emblems historically of the Reformed faith is the burning bush, the, the self-existent God, the, the God of aseity. Uh, and he possesses all things he needs in himself. God is an independent God, and that's, of course, true. God does not need you. God does not need me. God does not need the universe. You'll hear people say, you know, God was lonely, and therefore he made... No, no, God was never lonely. In the, perf- in the Trinity, of course, the Trinity is a community. God possesses... And eternally, God possesses love, satisfaction, fellowship, harmony. There's all blessedness within himself. Now, he desired to share it with you. He willed to create the universe. But God, and when we say, you know, God needs me to do something, I, I know we'll say that, but actually he does not need any of us. And he, and this is very, very encouraging, isn't it? Because he is able to create, what did, he, what did he say to the Pharisees? Jesus said, God can create sons of Abraham out of stones if he needs to. Now that's very encouraging in a time like ours where everything, we, we can't see how the means and ends add up. Well, God does not need means and ends. He can do anything he wants. Uh, in one of our prayers, uh, Malcolm was talking about, let's take the most wicked man and I'll make him an apostle. No problem. He can do it. He, he possesses in himself the store of all blessing, of all power, of all being, of all life. He is an, an independent. He is not a dependent God. All blessedness is in himself. And God's glory is underived. Now, it's interesting. We say we glorify God. But you need to realize that God does not actually regain any glory from anything we do. Why? Because he has infinite glory in himself. He manifests his glory. And this is what's going on with the universe. This is what's going on with history. God wills that his glory would be made known. And so he manifests a glory of which he has all fullness in himself from the beginning. He is the first cause. He is the ultimate end of all things. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory. God has all knowledge of things. There are no surprises to God. He has a perfect understanding of himself. Not only does he have the information, he has a perfect understanding of all things and of himself. Well, you go, well, again, in the Bible, why does he ask questions? You know, Adam and Eve, have you eaten of the tree? Well, that's a didactic exercise. God did not not know. God in his being, we had a thing a few years ago, a, a, a heresy a thing, called open theism, which said that, uh, and the whole idea was to exonerate God from being the source of evil. And they said the truth is that God does not know the future because you and I create the future. And we have this exciting partnership with God where God and we together, in fact, God is himself looking forward to the future that we create, a more terrifying thought I can hardly imagine. Um, no, God knows all. He must know all things. He is at all times, at all places, all at the same time. I, uh, one of uh, Augustine's analogies, which are imperfect, but I think are helpful, uh, compares uh, to you and I going down a, a river. 
And you and our lives, we pass down our lives like, like the boat going down the river. We're at a certain bend of the corner. That's where we are. We're at the next place. God is like above, and he's seeing, well, Augustine didn't say an airplane, but it's the idea. And he sees the whole river at the same time. He's outside of the creation. He's looking into it. God has perfect knowledge. And so when we pray to God, we're never informing him of things he does not know, but he desires a relationship with us, and so he wants us to tell him. He has a perfect knowledge and understanding. He is the author of all being, and therefore he has a claim to our obedience and service. Now, the third paragraph is probably the the, the most well-known, and it's the Trinity. In the unity of the Godhead, there are three persons of one substance, power, and eternity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. There's some verses there to show this. Uh, By the way, this is one of the classic statements where the word Trinity is not found in the Bible. But the doctrine of the Trinity is necessary by the Bible. Matthew 3, 16 to 17, that's Jesus' baptism, where you have all three persons of the Trinity working simultaneously. You have God the Father speaking from heaven, God the Son standing in the river, having had water poured over his head. And then you have God the Spirit descending on him like a dove. Now that, that, that fights against what's called modalism. One of the ancient heresies says that it's not, there's only one God and he's, there's no three persons. He just puts on a different mask when he wants. Well, not when he's present. Three persons are present in all three. Of course, 2 Corinthians 13, 14, it's a, it's a benediction mentioning God the Father and Son uh, and Spirit. Matthew 3, 6, uh, 28 to, uh, 28, 19 to 20 is, uh, the Great Commission, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father, the Holy Spirit eternally proceeding from the Father and the Son. Now, a few things about this. There are three persons in the one God. Now, that's not a contradiction. People say it's a totally irrational doctrine. It's actually not an irrational doctrine. We're talking in two different ways. We're not saying there is one person and three persons. We're saying there is one divine being. There is one divine nature, and that divine nature is three persons. Now you go, well, that, that's a mystery. Well, it's certainly a mystery. But it is not irrational. It's not a contradiction. We're, we're, not, we're, we're speaking in two different categories. There is one divine being. There are three divine persons. And here's the key. Each of these persons is truly and fully God. There is no sense in which God the Father is God, in which God the Son is not also God, and God the Spirit is not also the Spirit. In fact, we usually say, okay, what's the doctrine of the Trinity? There's one God in three persons. There's actually a third part that's necessary. They are equally divine in all respects. And that third part is the one where trouble comes. Uh, uh, he's one God, three persons, and the three persons are equally God in every sense. Now, there are, the confession describes what is called the personal properties of the three divine persons. Let me go back. This is a statement. So how, what is the difference between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, essentially, eternally? And, and this is all we can say. The Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding. The Son is eternally begotten of the Father. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and the Son. 
That's really all we can say. And all attempts to say more than that lead us into trouble. The difference between the person of the Father and the person of the Son, well, the Father begets. The Son is eternally begotten. Now, that's an important thing. Uh, There's often at times people who will deny the eternal sonship of the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, dare I say, if you're denying the eternal sonship of the second person of the Trinity, you are also denying the eternal fatherhood of the first person of the Trinity, because if you don't have a son, you don't have a father. So how can the whole idea of son seems to give the idea of derivative, derivation, but that, that that, that can't be so, or he would not be fully God. He is eternally begotten. Here's another useful Augustine analogy. Augustine says, imagine there's a spring, and that's the Father, and there's a stream that flows from the spring. And so the one is the source of the other. The other proceeds from it. Now, it makes it sound like this part is secondary until you say it is an eternal spring. That situation has always been the case. There was never a time when it began. That is the nature of relationship, and that is the way it is between the eternal begetting of the Father and the eternal begottenness of the Son. It is an eternal one. And you have all the biblical language of them sending the Spirit. The Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father and from the Son. Uh, now, we, we differentiate between the ontological issues of God. We're talking about the, this is called the nature of the being. A lot of times we, we take what are called the economical relationships, the way they work together, and we, we confuse those. This is about the ontological relationship between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father begets. By the way, uh, this is going to be on your, your licensure exam, Brendan. Uh, we always ask this. What are the personal properties of the members of the Trinity? There's really, we can't say, there are times when the nature of the mystery is such that we can only carefully say thir- certain things and we just have to stop speaking. There is one God in three persons. They are equal in all aspects of deity. The Father begets, the Son is begotten, the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Stop. Now, that brings us to an issue called the eternal subordination of the Son. This has been in the religious news a lot in the last five years. And the argument is made that the nature of sonship requires subordination to a father. We have children here. Tonight and the children, more or less, at least in theory, are subordinate to you parents and you fathers especially. And therefore, if Jesus is the son, it is of the essence of sonship that he is submissive to the father. Well, that's actually one of the arguments that was used by the heretic Arius in denying the deity of Jesus Christ. Because if he is, now we're talking about the Trinity in their eternal inter-Trinitarian relations. And the question comes up, should we speak of the eternal subordination of the Son? And the answer is, not if we don't want to be a heretic. It actually came about this way. There's an organization called CBMW, uh, Council of Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And I think it's a good organization. They asked me to be on their board a year ago. I declined to do so because they're teaching a heresy. Therefore, I can't be on And I didn't have time. Uh, I got other fish to fry. But they're, otherwise, it's a good organization. 
And they have written a lot of materials about biblical manhood and womanhood. One of their issues is the subordination of wives. And it turns out that one of the arguments that they made, which does not need to be made, was that there's nothing wrong with submitting. After all, God the Son eternally submits to God the Father. And there's a passage in 1 Corinthians 11 that they misused to that effect. Well, other people came along and said, you know, you really, first of all, the Bible just tells wives to submit to their husbands, so you don't need to commit a Trinitarian heresy to make it work out. Uh, Because we cannot say that eternally, in their eternal essential relationships, that the son is subordinate, because if he is subordinate, there is a sense in which he is not God. Moreover, if he is submitting his will to the will of God the Father, then now there are two distinct wills in the Godhead. You can, it's where it's helpful. One of the problems they make is they're taking a human analogy and they're backtracking that human analogy, sons and fathers, to the inner Trinitary relationships of God. The term for taking human things and defining God that way is idolatry. But, uh, we don't define our views of God by looking at created things and therefore create things of God. But if the, if the son is subordinating his own will in the eternal essential relationships to the will of the father, that means there are two wills. Well, uh, we got big problems if there's two wills. There is one divine will. There is one divine decree. There are not competing wills for the destiny of the universe. There is one, there's one being, and the will of God resides in that one divine being. So here's the question. So what about all those statements about the Lord Jesus where he says, I've come to do my Father's will? Well, that is not the eternal subordination of the Son. That is the incarnational subordination of the Son. And I have to say, This is probably the last five years. One thing I've learned through this controversy over ESS, eternal subordination of the sun, or EFS, eternal functional subordination of the sun, is that we need to keep our Trinity, we need to be on our toes with our Trinitarian doctrine. I actually went back to a couple of my commentaries saying, I hope I didn't mess that up. And I hadn't. I was relieved. But wherever in the New Testament you read of Jesus subordinating himself, and you read that a lot. I've come to do the work of him who sent me. I've come, my meat and drink is to do the will of my father. The context for 100% of those statements is the incarnation where he is the God-man, where he is the second Adam. In his eternal relations as God the Son to God the Father, Christ does not his submit, submit his will, the Son, to God the Father, because there is but one divine will. And so this language, one, one, thing, one of the lessons is when there's controversial Bible doctrines that some people might not like, you don't need to get, you don't need to go someplace else to get the leverage for it. Just teach it, explain it, and pray. Uh, and so the, the whole claim that Jesus eternally subordinates to the Father uh, is really not a necessary argument for the biblical subordination of wives to husbands. I was actually having dinner two, three years ago with one of the principal, it's kind of a Southern Baptist issue. In fact, just this week, a man named Owen Strand, he wrote, he came back, who I've otherwise liked, and he wrote, the personal properties of, of the Trinity are, the Father is of none, neither begotten nor proceeding, the Son submits and obeys. 
and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds. And I had to say, I don't throw this word around, but you're actually a heretic if you say that. I mean, the, the fourth century church would exile you from the empire. That, that you, you can't say that. It, it, it's actually reproducing, you know, the whole issue with Arius in the fourth century, anti, you know, the, 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 which was an anti Trinitarian heresy, and the essence of was denying the full deity to the Lord Jesus Christ. It was these kinds of arguments. He lacks authority. Well, if the Father has authority and the Son does not, then there is a difference between the Father and the Son, and the Son is therefore not God in the same way that he is. And all these arguments... So I was having dinner with the man who's actually the author of these things, and we were speaking at a conference together in Texas, and sure enough, someone at the dinner table brings it up, and you know, I could tell it was not a conversation that was going to be fruitful at the dinner table. And so somebody brings it up, and he says something, and I just said, look... If we go back and read the 4th century documents around the Nicene heresy, if we read the Cappadocian fathers, Gregory of Nyssa, Basil the Great, Basil of, of Cappadocia, uh, Nazianzus, and uh, it's all there. We just work it all out. And, and the man said to me, why do I care what a bunch of Catholics said? I said, well, it's actually, that's back when you had to be Catholic to be a Christian. <laughs> yeah, and, and so... Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity actually was well-developed in the 4th century, and we should not be innovating. One of my mottos is, there is no cause for which a corruption of the doctrine of the Trinity is a good, good means. There is one divine being, there is one divine will, the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and they all possess and receive the same glory. Now, one of the, how does this work out in practice? Ah, take the matter of salvation. The Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are working together. There's one will. Now, if you look at, for instance, Arminian theology, which says uh, uh, that that God, God chose no one to be saved, Jesus died for all persons, and the Holy Spirit regenerates only some persons. That's Arminianism. God didn't choose everyone. He gives everybody the same shot. Jesus died for everyone, but the Holy Spirit doesn't save everyone. What you have are, diff- are conflicting wills. And so, the, so, so God the Father says, you know, I gave everybody a chance. Jesus said, look, I died for everyone. Why aren't they saved? I don't mean this in an irreverent way. It's what it implies. And the Holy Spirit goes, well, I choose not to save them all. And you're going, stop. Whereas the Reformed faith says God the Father elected certain persons God the Son came, this is what the Scripture teaches, God the Son made atonement for those same certain persons. And those same certain people, guess what happened? The Holy Spirit brought them to life. He regenerated them and gave them life. It is the Trinity working. The Trinity works together in all things. There is one divine will. They are working together, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and they all receive the same glory. This is why we worship the Father. We worship the Son we worship the Spirit. And, and there's a, there's a, we pray to the Father through the Son, by the Holy Spirit. Uh, the doctrine of the Trinity, what the confession says, this is actually my last slide, is rather very sparse because these are the essentials. But dare I say, what a difference it makes to us that we, have, that we worship a triune God. Uh, we look to the Father and He has ordained. We look to the Son and He has 
accomplished. We look to the Spirit and He has applied. And they are working together in one divine will. And they all receive the glory of it all. They each receive glory for their part of it, in which they all rejoice and glorified. There is one God, three persons, equal and working in concert in all things. Let me pray. Father in heaven, I thank you for this brief lesson and a very high matter. Lord, this would probably take about uh, 18 weeks of lectures in a seminary. But I pray it's helpful, Lord, that we would expand our view about you. We would become wise in our thoughts of you. And Father, we acknowledge that you are infinitely above us and that you need nothing from us. And so what does it mean, Lord, that you, out of your will, you desired us? That you want us to to see your glory. You desire what you do not need. The manifestation of your glory in our lives. And then, Lord, you are inviting us into that eternal communion that is the Trinity through our salvation in the Lord Jesus. Father, help us to pray, knowing that we pray to you, the Father, through the Son, by the Spirit. There is one God in three purposes, persons. Father, we know that your will will be done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.